Troop withdrawals in Afghanistan, COVID on the rise, and chaos in the Caribbean. Next on Vince and Jason Save the Nation. Welcome to Vince and Jason Save the Nation. I'm Vince Colonnese. He's Jason Nichols. And we are here to talk to you on a Monday about so many important topics affecting our country and a couple of other countries, actually, today. Uh, with that, I turn it over to my buddy, Jason Nichols. Hello, Jason. What do you got? Hey, so right now, of course, after 18 or so long years of a war in Afghanistan, the question now is, or it looks like uh, Joe Biden and the Biden administration have decided to end the war. Of course, we know Joe Biden was one of the people who voted for the war in the first place. Um, and, you know, it was it was worthwhile. I think Afghanistan made a little bit of sense. Uh, certainly Iraq did not. But he's trying to end this war. And some people believe that this exit is a little bit hasty. We see the Taliban starting to make uh, a move and starting to actually uh gain ground in Afghanistan. So I wanted to ask you, of course, and our audience can certainly participate, and that is, uh, is this the right move right now? Or, or is this a hasty withdrawal after 18 years? Uh, there's nothing hasty about a withdrawal that took uh, nearly two decades uh, in the making. Um, I do think that, you know, one of the criticisms that's been leveled and is that you know, our military was pulling out in the middle of the night recently and that the coordination wasn't strong enough and that working with the Afghan partners and uh, ahead of that uh, uh, pullout wasn't fast enough. It's hard for me to see how that's the case, because, I mean, this has been this move has been telegraphed over the last few years, especially because the Trump administration uh, was setting this withdrawal in motion uh, as they started working with the Taliban. And again, take that for what you will. I don't think anybody's really trusted the Taliban, either Republicans or Democrats, but you're trying to work on how do we get out of this? And in fact, uh, Joe Biden uh, last week in making that announcement uh, mentioned the Trump administration's arrangement um, with the Taliban. And he said, that's the reason actually that we haven't had American casualties uh, uh, recently in these, in these many months uh, leading up to the withdrawal we're seeing now is because of that agreement between the Trump administration and the Taliban. Um, so this is something that both political parties had promised to do. Um, in fact, last time Joe Biden was in the White House, his boss, Barack Obama, had promised to do that very thing. It didn't end. It just kept going. And uh, I am glad to see it happening. Is it a mess? Absolutely. Would it have been the same mess potentially a decade ago? Probably, which is a sign that we have long overstayed this mission. And my final thought on the mission, you know, I, I talked to some of the military guys who got in there very early in, in uh, the end of 2001, right after 9-11. Uh, you know, our mission there was to respond to a horrific terror attack in the United States that killed over 3,000 people. And, uh, you know, a lot of those guys who went in and served throughout the many years, deployed there for many years since then, um, their view is, we should have gone in and killed the bad guys initially like we did. And then we should have gotten out and sent a clear message that when we're attacked, we will retaliate and we will retaliate aggressively to the point that the losses that you sustain when we retaliate are going to be a warning that you should never do that again. And that should have been our operating posture uh, in Afghanistan, but it wasn't. We allowed it to fester into a two decade long, long nation building exercise that failed. Uh, and that is just not a good thing. So I, I am happy to see, I don't, maybe happy is not the right word, relieved to see that this is finally coming to a conclusion. Uh, I think 
you know, you're not going to find an American anywhere that disagrees with that. Um, I think that this is a, a war that, you know, I, you know, it, it seems to me like we should have ended this after Barack Obama and the Obama administration killed Osama bin Laden. Um, right. We we did not need to hang around longer. Um, I do think that probably there were some on the Afghan side who who wanted us to stay around. It's like if you have your big brother there uh, because, you know, the, the neighborhood bully is is right across the street, but the neighborhood bully is afraid of your big brother. But at some point, you've got to learn to fight your own battles. Um, and I think the question that, you know, people are asking, and I, you know, I've been trying to do, you know, some reading on it. And the biggest question is, uh, does the Taliban uh, pose a threat to the U.S., um, the return of the Taliban? And, and I would say in the short term, the answer to that is no. Um, I think we need to let the, the Afghan security forces fight their fight. Um, and we sanction any country that cooperates with the Taliban. And I think that this is the troubling part. I think you're right about certain things about um, the Trump administration and their actions. But there's one element of this that I think the Trump administration hurt you know, a, a lot of our efforts and made this really difficult on the Afghan forces and you know, all of the nation building that people have tried to do. And that is that they gave the Taliban international legitimacy. Um, and, you know, with this exit, I also have some issues a little bit. I understand or, or, or on one end, I do understand what, what the, um, what the Taliban, excuse me, I'm sorry. I do understand what the Biden administration is thinking, but at the same time, the opponents who say that this is hasty, I also understand their point. And their point is that we're exiting at a time um, when the Afghan forces uh, don't have, we've given the, the uh, Taliban legitimacy and the Afghan government doesn't necessarily have that. And we could actually see the Taliban come in and take over Kabul. Um, I understand those concerns, but I believe that the Afghan government has to fight its own fight. And I think we have to leave them to do that. Right. And I also don't think it's a foregone conclusion yet that the Taliban takes everything over. Uh, you know, the Afghans were trained, you know, trillions of dollars, American taxpayer dollars went into training uh, the Afghan army. Uh, there is a capable fighting force there. You know, I've heard again from guys who've been in the region who think actually, uh, this will be a real fight. It's not over already. You know, despite the many headlines we're seeing about the territory that the Taliban are seizing, they're definitely doing that. The ports of the uh, the entry points in Afghanistan, the Taliban are seizing. Uh, the weapons caches, the Taliban are seizing. Uh, that is happening. Uh, but it looks like you will continue to, to see uh, a civil war going on in Afghanistan. Uh, and w without without clear um, without necessarily a clear ending preordained. Pre uh, it's yeah. just a, it's just a matter of, look, it's OK to think about and we should American interests and and what are served and what American voters want. And I, I don't know, Jason, it's like American voters of both parties have signaled time and time again, especially over the last decade. That's quite enough. Let's get out of Afghanistan. Let's get out of Iraq. And at some point you have to listen to the people who run the country 
and it's the American voter. No, I agree. And I, and I apologize if I sounded unclear before because someone had called me in my ear. <laughs> you know, that happens uh, because we're we're obviously on our computers. But um, also, I, I also want to commend you on your fashion choices today. Uh, you look great. <laughs> you, look, you look amazing yeah. today. Thank um, you very much. You're, you're obviously taking cues uh, from your colleague. Uh, <laughs> to your side right now but that's I, right I, that's right but I, you know what i was i think trying to say and i stumbled over because you know there was a phone ringing in my ear um what i was trying to say is that not only did we give the taliban international legitimacy they're going around the middle east and meeting with leaders around the middle east right now um, is that with some people are saying with the withdrawal, they didn't have to give up anything. You know, they their main goal was to get American forces out, you know, so that they yeah, could but take that territory back. And when you gave when they signed the peace deal and all those things happened, they didn't have to give up anything in order to get out, you know, to accomplish their primary goal. So I, I understand that argument. I'm with you on this one. Um, I actually think, look, 18 years is long enough. Um, the Taliban, even if they take that territory back and what we could see, and I've seen some people say that what we're going to see is a civil war and then perhaps Afghanistan splits um, with certain territories controlled by uh, the Afghan security forces and, mm -hmm. and the Afghan government and certain territories controlled by the Taliban and that the Taliban is going to be a milder, gentler version of the old Taliban is what some people believe because they are enjoying some of that international legitimacy. They don't want to do that. They don't want to squander that by not allowing women to go to school, you know, or, uh, you know, some of the, you know, not allowing women to work. They actually want to cash in on this international legitimacy and be legitimacy and be seen as legitimate. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I can see that argument as well. Um, if they don't violate human rights, they may be satisfied and maybe that's not the worst outcome is, is this split with a milder, uh, you know, a milder Taliban. Yeah, look, I, it's, it's impossible. As you know, it's impossible to predict what's going to happen. And, you know, and, and I don't think, I don't think the U S government confers or takes away legitimacy from the Taliban in any capacity here. I, you know, I just think that, like ultimately, you know, the guy who the 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 organizations that have power and wield it within a region uh, are going to be taken seriously, you know, whether or not they're forces for good or evil. And the Taliban clearly have power in Afghanistan. And and that I don't think that that's a, a product of any sort of U.S. blessing. It's just they do. And so that's well, the they, reality they, of the world we have to deal with. They do have power and they and they've had power for a while without U.S. blessing. But at the same time internationally being recognized uh, for their power in Afghanistan that they did not have. And the U.S., whenever the U.S., uh, you know, meets with um, a particular entity, it does give them some legitimacy, whether it's Kim Jong-il uh, or excuse me, Kim Jong-un. I've been watching these, doc these documentaries about dictators, so I'm getting yeah. Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-un mixed up. Uh, whether you're, you're, it's Kim Jong Un, whether yep. it's, uh, you know, whomever, it says this is legitimate leadership, 
And I think the U.S. does do that. We are the most powerful nation in the world. We are the world's superpower. Sure. Um, there are people nipping at our heels. But as of right now, as of today in 2021, the United States does, you know, have the ability to give somebody legitimacy. And I think right. we did give a portion of that, particularly within that region, to the Taliban. Um, but I think now what Joe Biden or excuse me, the Biden administration is trying to do is meet with all of these regional powers. Also, they have affirmed their commitment to the Afghan government. You know, they're just saying we're not going to be there militarily, but we're still going to assist you um, in many ways, you know, like right. they do with Ukraine, like they do with, you know, many other nations around the world. You have our assistance, uh, but you will not have our manpower. And I think that that's a fair approach, you know, to say we're, we're not abandoning you when, you know, when you need our help, but you're going to have to fight your own battles. We've trained you for nearly two decades, as you yeah. stated. And, and I think, you know, sometimes it's like you got to let your little brother take those punches. Yeah, I, there's, you know, there's another component to this. One is that, like, like why didn't we learn our, like the lessons of history in Afghanistan? Like if you needed proof that this was going to be a foolish errand. Look no further than Alexander the Great. Look no further than the Brits. Look no further than the Soviets. I mean, just every yeah, single time these pushes, these, these pushes into Afghanistan, what is the result of all of this? Um, and the, now, now add the Americans to the list. It's just crazy um, that it seems like our approach was pretty ahistoric. My, my concern about what the Biden administration is doing is not what it's done in the present, but what it's going to do in the future. And I, and I really hope uh, that they can come through for the guys in Afghanistan who came through for us, specifically the interpreters. I know the Biden administration, um, Joe Biden himself said this past week that they're working on this and they want to get all the interpreters into the United States who want to come. Um, you know, it's it's rough that we're in a situation where so many who want to come didn't already get out the door prior to us getting out the door. Uh, but I do think that um, the guys who are loyal to the United States at risk of their own lives within their own country um, should be taken care of if they'd like to come to the United States. And so I hope that that gets resolved in a way that, um, that, that we do the right thing. I, I totally agree with that. And I know, um, you know, Adam Kinzinger, I, I think he's been, you know, leading the charge on that a couple other you know veterans in congress that have certainly come forward and been like look we have to take care of these guys um i do want to make one last point about the the giving legitimacy element i think yeah. one of the one of the big mistakes also because of um you know with some experts i've been reading the the trump administration was kind of amateurish in the way that they approached the taliban was that they didn't include the afghan government so not only did they give legitimacy to uh, the the Taliban, you know, not including the Afghan government almost uh, makes it seem like you're you're acknowledging uh, the Taliban and not acknowledging the Afghan government and right. um, in those talks in Doha, uh, which I think undermined their uh, credibility and their um, in in many ways their security and a lot of other countries. Sure, you know. Uh, we'll, we'll look at that and see, well, the Taliban, you know, they're the people who 
the Trump administration or the United States. It's not about an administration. Yeah. It's about the United States of America, that they're the people that they actually talk to. And you got to actually, I, I think if you want to make the Afghan government, you know, legitimate and say, hey, you can stand on your own, then you have to have them present at those talks um, and say what it is that they need uh, from the Taliban and, and make it so that the Taliban recognizes them. Um, right. And I, I think it was I think that was a squandered opportunity in the way that that we approach those peace talks. I do. Yeah, it could know, be think that there were some good things out of it, though. It could be also just a sign of reality. Right. I mean, how how impossible it was to bring those two sides together. And, um, you know, I I do think that in like sort of diplomatic punditry, when we talk about like conferring legitimacy, that that point is often overstated, like you know, Trump meeting with Kim Jong-un. Oh my gosh, he granted him legitimacy. Okay, whatever. He's trying something new. Uh, and and if like flattering Kim Jong-un is a way to get him to stave off his nuclear ambitions in any capacity, that's a win for the United States. And we didn't really give yeah. away anything. We just gave him a yeah, meeting. Yeah, we haven't seen that. <laughs> you know, I think he still has nuclear yeah, ambitions. But. That, no, he totally does. But my point is like, like what was lost in that? Nothing. We lost nothing. And like, I, I just think that, you know, the conversations around like, oh, my gosh, this is like a giant giveaway for us to have conversations with these people. I'm not convinced. I just not. I, I you know, if, if it can even have a chance of um, a positive benefit being derived from it, then I'm OK with it because it really didn't cost us anything. Um, well, I, I'll say this, you know, um, and. I, I generally don't like whatabouts, even though I do whatabouts. We all do whatabouts. Um, I remember, I can't remember, I think it was Clinton. Um, it was either Clinton or Obama or both were Probably. criticized heavily just for shaking Fidel Castro's hand. <laughs> you know what I mean? Literally, in passing, not like, we're, we're, you know, they had a sit down and a meeting and shared a meal, like literally in passing shook you know guy stuck his hand out uh -huh. and they didn't leave him hanging and were heavily criticized not like a conversation not like hey what are you you know what are we doing here not you know what you know what are you doing for your people like literally just walking by in a hallway and guy stuck his hand out and he shook it um and they were heavily criticized i can't remember whom it was in particular it may have been clinton um but they were like, it was the first president to shake. Uh, and trust me, I'm no fan of Clinton, but first president to shake Fidel Castro's hand. Right. And the whole thing was because he's a bad guy. But fast forward uh, to 2019 or whatever, and none of that really matters. People are like, well, he's a bad guy, but you can say he's a good guy and you can meet with him. And, and yeah, I mean, I Pyongyang guess. I guess the way to judge those things is like, what are the goals and to what extent did they confer a benefit on the United States of America? I mean, you're, you're right to be on guard for hypocrisy. I, I, I always am too. Um, but like, you know, Obama in Cuba taking a picture in front of a Che Guevara mural that, that was the kind of thing they're like, what is he doing? Like what, why would he even, um, uh, you know, go out of his way to celebrate heroes of communism. That's just, it's it's bonkers uh, to do something like that. So so I get it. I, I get the criticism uh, that exists out there. I, I know you know the, uh, Trump critics were upset with him for 
what they thought saw as conferring legitimacy on Kim Jong-un, that that was too much of a giveaway. I just disagree. I just thought that, look, Trump's trying something different, uh, no question. And he's going to try and, you know, foster a relationship that hopefully nets something good for the United States, because, you know, it is a big deal to um, try and prevent North Korea from becoming a nuclear armed uh, uh, power. Um, and, you know, those, you know, it's not like he relieved any of the sanctions or anything. All this, the sanctions regime stayed and, and was tough and has really caused a lot of heartache in North Korea, a lot. Um, but meanwhile, he tried to play nice guy with Kim Jong-un in the hopes of getting something out of him. I just wasn't bothered by it. Yeah, I, I, well, again, if we judge by results, he didn't get much out of it. And I, and to be honest, I'm, I'm anti uh, certain kinds of sanctions, not all sanctions, of course, you can certainly sanction individuals, you can sanction, you know, um, certain things. But I think, you know, some sanctions actually just starve people. And Kim Jong Un is, you know, while the people of North Korea are starving, literally, uh, Kim Jong Un is a fat guy. You know what I mean? Um, who's probably got clogged arteries well, from all the fancy steaks he's eating. Have you same seen thing, him lately? Same thing in Cuba. Have you seen uh, him lately, though? I haven't, but I know he's uh, he's had some health issues. Correct. He lost he lost a ton of weight. Check out a photo of Kim Jong Un uh, that lately. So remember last year there was this story that he might have been brain dead, and we were like there were all these questions like what happened to Kim Jong Un? There was this health scare for him. Uh, that was right. getting around internationally. Well, since then, in the last few weeks, there have been photos that have come out of him and he's lost like a ton of weight. And there's That's all these good. questions Go about, ahead. yeah, I guess presumably, I don't, we don't know why he lost the weight though, because it may have been the product of um, his health that he may have been right. so sick, he lost a ton of weight from, from his illness. Of course, in North Korea, what they're doing is they're spinning it that he's been sacrificing his own diet in solidarity with the people like this is like <laughs> like it's like it's become this like you know gigantic yeah. you know uh, piece of propaganda in North Korea because it's impossible to hide the fact that he's no longer the gigantic fat guy that he was a year ago uh, right. so something something really weird's going on in North Korea yeah. as usual I mean Fidel Castro, he never missed a meal. Like the, these people eat while their people starve. Big time. And so I think some of these sanctions don't produce the results. They, they, as we saw with Fidel Castro, who died in power, you know, uh, from what, 1959 to 2017 or whatever it, it, year it was when he died, I don't remember. Um, you know, that holds time. People were sanctioned. People missed meals. People were struggling in Cuba. But yet, Fidel Castro lived to be almost 90 years old and never skipped a meal. So I think, yeah. you know, I, I have issues with that. And speaking of Fidel Castro, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in the Caribbean, both in sure. Cuba and in Haiti, uh, right after we take this quick break. So. Um. We've seen some and in Haiti right now in Cuba, they're protesting in the streets, uh, the new president. Um, and the interesting thing is, I, I think, honestly, there's not this cultural connection to this new president. So all of the frustrations that that occurred under um, Castro, mm -hmm. you can't wash that away with the people anymore because of the fact that 
he's not a revolutionary. You know, he, he can't claim this uh, romanticized Cuban ro uh, revolution that I think some Cubans actually attach themselves to. So he's going to face the brunt of all the frustrations, the, the crumbling infrastructure, um, the poverty that they have on the island. Um, and right now, of course, post-COVID, you have a food shortage. You have people who are food insecure. They're very upset. Um, right. And they're hitting the streets in, in Cuba. Now, in Haiti, we've seen it is a total mess. And it's been a mess for a while. Um, you know, it's it's been a mess, you know, one could argue for 100 years or so. But certainly, uh, it's since the, the earthquake, and then you've got all this political instability and bad leadership and corruption. Um, and... Uh, recently culminating with the assassination of President Moïse in Haiti. Uh, there have been, I believe, 18 Colombian nationals that, are, that were arrested in Haiti for his murder, and three Americans, um, or at least two American citizens, and one who was living in America, uh, who has been arrested, who was a doctor in Florida. Right. And many people believe that he was actually uh, the mastermind of this whole thing and had gotten these Colombian Sicarios to go over to Haiti and, and carry out this assassination because he had presidential aspirations. I'm going to be honest with you, Vince. If I'm a doctor in Florida, I do not want to be president of Haiti. I mean, I don't care how nationalistic or patriotic you are. I think you live a comfortable life as a doctor in Florida much more comfortable than you would live as president in Haiti. That's just yeah. my personal opinion. Yeah, that's for sure. But um, I think all of this, and, and you know, some people are watching are probably like, so what does this have to do with us? Um, with all of the instability and frustration on these two island nations, what happens when these people start showing up at our borders? Mm -hmm. And I wanna ask you what you think should happen uh, being that, you know, many people on the right are saying we should close our borders off to to people who, who try to come into our country. And yet, historically, there we have allowed Cuban refugees to come into the country um, because we've seen the situation in Cuba and, and had empathy with, uh, the you know, some Cuban people. Mm -hmm. My question is, of course, I would say it's political because we did not have that empathy for Haitian people who literally suffered more um, through worse dictatorships and more violent dictatorships. But we've had this empathy for Cubans and some people have suggested there are many reasons why uh, we had that for Cubans and not for people in Central America or people in um, you know, other parts of the world or people in certainly in Haiti. Mm -hmm. But I, we don't have to necessarily get into that. We, possi we possibly can touch on it. But Times have times changed, and should we, will we be turning some of these Cuban American, or excuse me, Cubans back to Cuba um, as we close off our borders to people who are coming in seeking asylum? Right. Well, asylum is for uh, political persecution. That is a a reason why somebody could come here. Um, you know, I I'm open minded about it. Uh, that's what I'll say. I don't have, I don't have super defined views. I do think that we should have control of who comes into our country and who doesn't. I think that's a really basic principle that every country needs. Uh, you need a, a functional border and a functional immigration system and a functional decision 
making process about whether or not you accept people in an asylum capacity. You know, one of the reasons I know you didn't ask about Central America, but one of the reasons why I think the Central America thing is relevant, especially because of the way people uh, travel, is the United States is not the only place that can take refugees. It's not, although that seems to be <laughs> the way the press covers it. Uh, if you res- if you get to a safe third country, if you get to Mexico, uh, you can make an asylum claim there and stay there. You you escaped the conditions of your persecution, uh, and so you're perfectly capable of making an asylum claim there. I imagine that you'll have Haitians and Cubans who are looking to do the same. Uh, you would They're already there. Yeah. Hope in, in all sorts of countries, um, not just the United States. Um, I, I just on this issue of what's going on in Cuba, I think it's a big deal right now. Um, I think it's interesting to watch. You know, it's not like there's uh, obviously a lot of pent up um, anti-communist sentiment among the people who are marching in the streets. It's not just COVID, although COVID, just like so many things in the lockdowns we've seen, uh, all across the planet have exacerbated the tensions between peoples and their governments, including here in the United States, but to a lesser extent. Um, in Cuba, you're seeing a lot of chance of down with communism, a chance for liberty. You're seeing the American flag flown as a symbol of liberty uh, within Havana, around Cuba, um, which I think is an interesting thing. Um, you know, Hong Kong, it was the same thing in Hong Kong uh, when the protests were more uh, permitted which is is obviously collapsed thanks to the swift movement of the communist uh, government of China. Um, They were flying the American flag as well. It's interesting that the American flag is seen as a symbol of liberty uh, among repressed peoples around the world. And I was trying, I was struggling to think of, is there a more, um, is there a better symbol of freedom that you could fly than the American flag uh, across the planet? And I don't think there is actually, I think the American flag is the one. And that's why you're seeing them. It's it being flown in Cuba and in Hong Kong. Um, you know, this is a really tough moment for Cuba, but I think it should be eye-opening for the rest of the world about the um, about the disaster that communist regimes always prove to be. And Cuba is an example of that. Uh, and uh, and the people people there are just are hungry for freedom. And you know, if if that does mean that there are some refugees that come from that, um, yeah, I think you know we should be open minded about taking them. That's that's my position to answer your question. I, again, I don't I don't have I don't have crystal clear views on that. I'll admit, uh, but um, I, I am open minded about uh, people who are being persecuted by their governments, uh, in particular, um, and the extent to which we should have an accommodating policy. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. I, I do think that um, refugee claiming refugee status is a legal way uh, to try to get residency in, in a particular country. And, you know, you said, of course, that, you know, Central America, there are other countries that they yes. can go to. Yeah. Um, have you if you look at a map of Cuba um, and Cuba is just as close, the tip of Cuba is just as close to the Yucatan and to Mexico as mm-hmm. it is uh, to the United States. So, um, you know, they could go to Mexico and often do go to Mexico. Um, and a lot of times, you know, there, there's been a lot of discussion. Sometimes they get victimized on the border. They make the same trip as the Central American people do. but. Cubans obviously are oftentimes uh, physically distinguishable from 
the um, from the Central Americans, you know, not always, obviously, but sometimes, you know, Cubans are oftentimes white or black. And, you know, a lot of the Central Americans are more um, indigenous Americans. And so they, there's exploitation that happens on the border and, you know, uh, that I've read about. Um, but the point is. Wait, I'm sorry, just expand on that. There's exploitation of Cubans uh, because yeah, they don't they don't look like Central Americans. They're smaller. They're a smaller group, usually. Um, and there's exploitation of everybody sometimes, you know, on the border. And I was reading this article a long time ago about how Cubans are especially susceptible because of their accents, because of the way they look, um, that, you know, larger groups, either Central Americans or Mexicans exploit mm -hmm. them. Um, now that's, you know, that was one article. I don't gotcha. know how widespread that is. But the point um, is they're but, treated, they're treated as they're, they're other, they're treated as second class. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know. Second class may be tough under those circumstances, but they, they are othered. Um, okay. Okay. I got it. You know, but, but my point is um, that, and, and of course there's a huge Cuban American community that, that is ex accepting of Cubans yeah. um, with open arms in South Florida and in other parts of the country. Yes, because they resent they resent communism pretty fiercely. Absolutely, and and you know the the interesting thing if we got into the politics of all of that, there's there's a racial compel, uh, component to that as well, oftentimes. But the the point here that I'm making is Cuba. For all of the struggles of the Cuban people, if we were to compare that to the political instability and the the legitimate asylum asylum claims that would come out of haiti mm -hmm. you know historically you know there's the wet foot dry foot thing and and all the things that have happened um where we have accepted cuban americans but turned haitians away um so that's that would be my concern is that there would be this kind of you're, you're right about um the united states can accept who it wants and that's part of our sovereignty as a nation. Yeah. The question is, does it, will it make sense? Yeah, you know? I think that that was a product. I, I think that was also a product of our, our, um, our posture towards the Soviets, right? It was just like a long running, uh, specifically anti-communist sentiment. So we created a, a world where we would be more easily accommodating to refugees from communism. Um, you know, they, they just think about how Cold War era thinking affected so much of our policies. Uh, and that that certainly is a product of that. No, absolutely. Um, but, you know, this actually popped up and, and became part of political discourse in the U.S. in the 1990s. So the mm -hmm. Soviet Union had already been toppled. Um, but I guess we were late, late to the party in terms of that. I just want to, you know, I just hope that it, whatever we do with immigration makes sense. I think both groups have a claim towards asylum. Um, I just don't want to see one group get, get preference over the other. Um, and for us to look at, you know, Central Americans or people from Haiti differently than we do when they're oftentimes coming from more desperate circumstances um, than we do uh, the people of Cuba. Um, I hope that we'll actually take all of these nations seriously. Um, 
you know, my my father just was in Cuba and he was, you know, telling me about particularly about the crumbling infrastructure in Cuba. And yeah. how like they lose like a building a day or something or a building a week. Crazy. Like literally just falls to the ground. Um, and there are probably some people living in buildings that are that are collapsing. Yeah. Um, probably children and babies. And so, you know, they could have a homelessness issue. I'm not sure how, how big it is right now. He said that there was certainly some homelessness there. Um, you have a lot of issues in Cuba. Um, again, I'm, I'm not a fan of the embargo. I think, uh, you know, that's done nothing but starve the Cuban people and not the leadership. And it did nothing to get rid of the Castro regime whatsoever. Um, so I think we need to, to take a new approach. Um, and for all the people who say, hey, it's okay to meet with, with North Korean officials, uh, but yet will oppose the idea of having a Cuban embassy or, or having any kind of diplomatic relationship with Cuba, to me, I'm wondering how that makes sense. Like why we don't want diplomatic relations, or at least someone can explain it to me, why we don't want diplomatic relations with a nation that is really close to us, um, that we don't agree with in many ways, but we're willing to talk to the Taliban, mm. we're willing to talk to, uh, to Kim Jong-un, we're willing to talk to all these other people, but you know, for some reason, Cuba uh, it's, it's hands off. And I'm not really sure I see the, the reasoning in that. And, and again, maybe there's something I'm not fully aware of that someone can explain to me, but, um, to me though, those are my positions on it. You know, yeah. I say, uh, legitimate claim to asylum for everybody equally. Um, and I think in the past that has not been the case. Um, and we prioritize certain people's political struggles over others, even people who are more desperate. Yeah. So the um, the use of uh, sanctions and legitimacy, I think you make a really good argument. It's like, you know, like, uh, you know, what kind of diplomatic relations do we have with any given country? Uh, and just to go back to the prior point, it's like, look, Trump broke all of the conventions, no question. Uh, and I think it was interesting to see, actually, it was, it was interesting to see like what it would look like if somebody did it completely different than the way the status quo has always done it. Uh, yeah. and, and the status quo has not served us, uh, super well. So I'm open-minded about like how we, uh, change ideas. So meeting with Kim Jong-un again, didn't bother me. Um, I think you make a great point. It's like, you know, what kind of diplomatic relations should we have? Should we have legitimate embassies? And it's just been the history of the United States that any country uh, that we consider despotic and its government to be um, uh, authoritarian and illegitimate, we typically avoid uh, having an official embassy. Um, and the pressure that we place by way of sanctions is to get the people to place pressure on their government, right? So, you know, in, in North Korea, you know, the presumption is at some point this will turn towards, uh, and, you know, Kim Jong-un, the sanction pressure. In Iran, it was successful, the sanction pressure, very successful in actually getting to Iran to come to the negotiating table in the first place on the Iran deal. Whatever you think of the Iran deal, the sanction pressure uh, played a gigantic role in getting them to say, okay, uncle, sure. let's have, let's, let's do something different. Um, yeah, that's true. And so I think that there is an upside to sanctions. There is an upside to, um, basically coming up with something punitive 
And and also the other side of it is like, do you really want American businesses profiting off of exploited labor? Do you really want um, American businesses, you know, selling to regimes that are um, oppressing their people? Um, I mean, there's a lot of questions that actually come into play here. And it, I, I think they're all worthwhile yeah. to, to explore. I, I think you're made again, you know, um, you're making a good choice just like you did with your fashion this morning. I, I would say uh, the, the primary thing, though, and you were right that Trump broke conventions. And there were times where, like you said, I, I was like Michael Jordan, uh, Michael Jordan, Michael Jackson in the in the um, movie theater during Thriller. Where he was eating uh, the popcorn, like all excited. <laughs> like I, I was kind of excited to see, like, how is this going to work? Like, yeah. you know, I do think, again, he alienated our allies. Like, had he gotten our allies, convinced our allies, hey, let's try something different. Well, me, I would have been, like, throw... been with it. But, but, but let me just make this one last point. Sure. Um, the one place he did not defy convention was Cuba. <laughs> like, why? I, that's what I didn't understand. It's like he, he defied convention everywhere else. And I understand there's a political cost to that. Republicans depend upon South Florida. That's like that. You South hit Florida, it. You've, you've nailed it you know, it is, is like Republican stronghold. It has the Cuban expats. Um, yep. And, you know, he knew in order to win Florida, um, even though he's saying all the votes are legitimate every, or illegitimate everywhere and it was all this fraud. The reason he legitimately won Florida, just like he legitimately lost Georgia, um, is because, partially because of some of the ways he's returned to that hardline uh, response to the Cuban regime. Um, yeah. But so, I mean, in, in that sense, he responded different? in that sense, he responded to voters like I, you know, I sometimes I, we talk about things like this, like in a very politically cynical way, like, oh, he, all he was doing was trying to suck up to those voters. I don't know. That kind of seems like a good reason for a politician to do something, which is like, oh, if voters want it, then then do that. Um, you know, it was interesting looking back. I know uh, David Shore, who's a Democratic strategist, has looked back at the, the, the numbers from the last election and has been very interested in um, the especially the amount of Latino votes that moved in Trump's direction. And um, not all of it was opposition to communism and socialism. Some of it was that uh, some, so there was a lot of um, a lot of Hispanics who agreed with Trump's policies on the border, very concerned about illegal immigration that brought them into Trump's camp. Um, but you're right. It's South Florida, Cubans, Venezuelans who were very concerned about um, the oppression of communism and saw Trump's movements on Cuba. And I think you're right. I think Trump made that decision with the electoral consequences in mind. And my view on that is like when people criticize that particular thing, like, oh, he's only doing that to suck up to this block of voters. I don't know. It just seems like a good thing. Like the whole point of our system but, is like you should. But isn't that right? But isn't that well? So I think that there that there are good times when there are times when that makes sense. I think there's nuance there. I think there are times where that makes sense, and there are times where you do what's right, regardless of, of whether it's popular. You know, uh, one of my favorite Dr. King quotes, and I'm not going to butcher it, but basically, you know, he he says, you know. Uh, that the conscience asks, asks if it's right, not if it's right. politic, not if, you know, not if it's popular, but is it right? And, you know, um, 
I think that, you know, he didn't govern the, the SCLC based on, you know, looking at the polls and what people like. And as a matter of fact, when he died, he sure. was incredibly unpopular. And so, but I think one of the, the problems with that, and I, and I, you know, of course, I oftentimes think in a civil rights context. So, um, you know, I think about the, the mayor of Nashville, I believe, it's the mayor of Nashville, um, when you had civil rights protests there mm -hmm. um, and, and early sit-ins with Diane Nash, who I, who I think it is criminal how people don't know Diane Nash. It was Diane Nash and, and John Lewis and people, how many, or no, I don't think John Lewis was a part of it, but how many people don't know Diane Nash is, is criminal? Um, but Diane Nash, uh, you know, she went up to the, to the mayor of the city and said, you know, do you think this is right? Do you think it's right that we don't get to eat at the same places? Are we not human beings? Are we not, you know, the creation of God? Like, yeah. is this right? And he, he went and the mayor who knew this was unpopular in Tennessee yeah, said, no, you're right. We will end this. Yeah, because somebody approached him with hard questions and he had to, you know, he had to look at it from his perspective and he made a decision even against the popular will of his voters. And, yes. and I think that there are times when you have to do that as a leader. There are times, of course, Donald Trump did a whole lot of things that were unpopular, you know, with a large masses of, of the United States. I don't know that he thought they were right as much as he thought it would please his base. But I definitely think that there are times where leaders have to make decisions that are not going to necessarily be popular um, with large swaths of the country and with, you know, some voters. And I think in yeah. terms of South Florida, um, you know, I, I just... You know, I, I remember watching, again, anecdotal, let me just put this out there, but, you know, I remember watching this one documentary where this woman was really hardline Cuban expat, and then somehow she was able to travel back to Cuba. Now, generally, if you're an expat and you travel to Cuba, they'll, they'll detain you. You know what I mean? Like, I, I've had friends who are like, I'm not even Cuban. It's just my last mm. name is Martinez. And they like, stop me and ask me some questions. Um, but you know, this person uh, went back there and she came back and she was like, and this was an older Cuban woman. And she was like, when I saw the conditions that people live under, you know, I have a different approach. I don't think sure. that this embargo is working. Castro's mm -hmm. still sitting pretty and the people there are struggling. And I, I totally understand what you mean about putting pressure on people. But like you said, try new things. You yeah. know, after 50 years of a Castro or damn near 60 years of the Castro regime, like trying yeah. this this uh, pressure campaign to get the people to rise up. And there have been moments like this before. I know we were saying this is somehow different or an aberration. There have been moments where people have hit the streets and then it ends just like people hit the streets in the United States and complain about certain things. And then, you know, the temperature drops. Um but the Castro regime lasted 60 years and no change. You know, right. the people did not start their own revolution. You tried Bay of Pigs, didn't work. All of that did not 
yield the results? When are we going to try something different so the Cuban kids aren't starving? Yeah, I I I think you're right in uh, in the sense that like we should always be open minded about what our strategy is and be really clear minded about what the goal is, which is uh, you know at least for Cuban people who are seeking freedom to end the communist regime. That's the goal. And um and like what is in America's interest? That's first and foremost uh, the our should be our concern. Um, yeah, it's you know. Uh, my worry about this conversation, not the one you and I are having, but the one where uh, the embargo is brought up is is like the idea that um, that is the thing that's blamed for the conditions of the Cuban people when the country deserves to wear this shame around its neck in, in Cuba. And uh, I'm seeing a lot of people like kind of instantly rush to the, well, we should be sending more vaccines and we should stop the embargo. And and really, it's a kind of like a, a, a beat ourselves up moment yet again on social media, which is one of the worst places that you can have any conversation uh, and not enough um, shame being directed to the party that really deserves it, the Communist Party of Cuba. And um, and, you know, for anybody to come out and be like, well, it's really America's fault is to not take seriously the people who are on the ground right now making the case against their own government. Uh, and that's that's really my point. That's the thing that I'm that I'm watching and thinking, gosh, it's such a shame that um, there are just so many people who are who are not listening to the people who are on the ground and instead turning this into, you know, like a like a, let's beat up on America session yet again. Uh, I just don't think that's a good idea. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm not. I'm saying, you know, let's do something that yields results. Yeah, I understand. Um, and, and let's not run our head into a wall for six decades. And I really believe we'll see what happens with this. Um, you know, we saw, uh, you know, big protests in the streets in Venezuela and Maduro is still there. Yeah. You know, if, if I'm not mistaken, unless something's changed, he's still there. I mean, heck, know? we supported we we announced we were supporting a different guy as the leader of the country. <laughs> Right. We recognize somebody different. Conferred legitimacy upon uh, yeah. Juan Guaido. And, and how did and that believe, work? <laughs> yeah, it, it it didn't. I mean, I still think he's seen as legitimate and seen as the legitimate leader around the world. And people recognize right. him rather than, than Maduro. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I think there have to be, you know, some more creative ways to, to look at diplomacy and to look at how, you know, I think Helping the Cuban people is different than helping, um, you know, these these Cuban leaders. And, and so, I, I you know, it's a, it's a tough situation. That's why I'm not a diplomat. I just criticize them. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I think that that's what it comes down to. Now, let's take a quick break. And then I want to come back and talk about COVID yep. rising in uh, throughout the country and maybe a little bit about Conor McGregor and that fight. Uh, with Justin Poirier. So let's see what we have time for uh, right after this quick break. So, I mean, I don't, I think we've been talking about COVID a lot over the last, sure. uh, you know, couple of weeks. Um, yeah, it's only a pandemic and, that killed 600,000 people. Right, right. <laughs> you know, um, but I think we, we've also made a lot of the points from, from our different perspectives. But right. I think you're, you know, um, We've we've talked about it a lot, but we're seeing that that now the U.S. is averaging 19,455 new COVID cases over the past seven days. That represents a 45 percent spike 
most of it is coming out of Florida, Arkansas, Louisiana, Missouri, and Nevada. Um, and one hospital in, excuse me, in Missouri, mm-hmm. um, 91% of their ICU patients are on ventilators, um, which is a spike past the peak last year, which was at 50% being on ventilators. We know when you get on a ventilator, it is really hard to get off of one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that deaths usually spike about three weeks to a month later. So we we could see a spike in deaths. Almost all of these people who are dying are not vaccinated. Um, and so, and, and a lot of these, the majority of these hospitalizations, if not all, are people who are um, not vaccinated. Vince, how do we get these people vaccinated? How do we get Americans to realize that these vaccines aren't going to kill you? COVID is. Yeah, my point uh, on this, as you said, we've said it a lot, is has been that you need to um, you need to uh, create an environment of trust. So do things, you know, frequently tell the truth, including about the things you don't know. And then Americans will trust you more uh, when it comes to the things like we are like, hey, I need you to take this action. Um, so that's that's really that's some helpful guidance for the next pandemic uh, if and when it arises. But for this one, you know, at some point we have to say it's up to Americans to make decisions for themselves. And I know that's a tough thing because you will have Americans who will die who are not protected. Um, My position on this is and will always be that the vulnerable need to protect themselves. That's my that's my urging. So if you're in a vulnerable category, if you've got the comorbidities, if you're older, the vaccine's a really good idea for you. Um, if you're younger, you're in luck. You can make a choice because these the health outcomes have been um, uh, very good for young people. Uh, and even if you endure the va- even if you endure the virus itself, um, you know chances are you're going to do very well in the face of that virus. But of course, are there risks? Are there long haul symptoms that some people have experienced? Absolutely. So um, I just think that you need to basically consult with your doctor and make an educated decision about whether or not you want to be vaccinated if you're one of the people who's not currently vaccinated. I think this idea that we have to like just keep on demanding that people do something that they've already decided they don't want to do is a bad idea. And we should we should relent. We should just like, you know, it's leave it up to people to make that decision for themselves. Uh, but for whatever reason, like I saw Dr. Liana Wen, you know, her from she was from Baltimore and then she was the head of Planned Parenthood. Now she's a CNN medical contributor. She was on CNN this weekend saying we've got to make things tougher for people who are unvaccinated. We have to make things bad for them. And I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, like, wait a second, when you were the head of Planned Parenthood, you were one of the people who were like literally saying, you know, it's my body, my choice. Like, why has your view changed so dramatically uh, between those issues? Um, I think people should be afforded liberty, Jason. That's that's my position. Yeah, I, I'm I'm certainly not for you know any kind of government going around and forcibly sticking needles in anyone's arm, and I don't think anybody is is necessarily um, promoting that idea. Even you know um, Dr. Wen, I, I think I don't know. I didn't see the segment that you're saying. I, I think, well, her point know, her point was that you know we should. Uh, make it more compulsory by way of these companies, right? The companies who are trying to mandate vaccines. And so she's looking for compulsory mechanisms. Does it mean that the government does it? I don't think that's what she's saying. But she is saying that she wants to uh, induce compulsory vaccination by way of the services that we engage in, the employment we engage in. And she thinks that, um, that people who are unvaccinated 
should be subjected to rigorous testing regimes so that if they want to keep engaging in these services, they should be tested. Uh, I think she said twice a month or something uh, in order for them to be allowed to keep engaging in those services. And I just think that that's, that's a horrible situation to place Americans in. You shouldn't do that. And you should afford them the liberty that they, that they have. That's, that's, that's their God-given right. That's why we enshrined it. Yeah. Well, I, I can say in terms of testing, which, um, you know, if you're going to work in, in, in certain capacities, I don't see that as as a problem or invasive or anything, whether you're vaccinated or not, to be honest with you. Um, I, I think, you know, testing is not a bad thing. So I'm, I'm kind of with her on that. Um, I do think and, you know, if people think, oh, that's invasive or whatever. I, you know, I think you're a whiner, to be honest, like chill out, you know, um, it's for public safety and you know we don't have vaccine passports or whatever so i think everybody can can uh you know can go through that if somebody wants to when i walk into a restaurant if they want to take my temperature go ahead you know what i mean i'm not tripping you know um if at my job every you know month they want to you know do a random COVID swab i'm not yeah. really tripping because we're in a pandemic and 600,000 people have died so yeah well, let me I'll, I'll, I'll subject myself to that. Um, let me throw down. Let me throw down an alternative, though. Let me say one other thing. Okay. And that is that um, many of the people, um, according to the sources that I was looking at, many of the people who are hospitalized right now are between the ages of twenty and forty, and a lot of that is because of the vaccine hesitancy within that group. Now, will that group die? Excuse me. Um, probably less likely than some of the people who are 50 and above. For sure. Um, but people who are who are 20 to 40 are still at risk. Um, and certainly at risk because vaccines are not 100 percent. They they help a whole lot. 90 percent, 95 percent. Now, you know, of course, Pfizer is making these claims that, you know, the vaccine is going to run out at some point. You may need a booster. Um, now, of course, I don't know how, of course, I know how our audience feels about Dr. Fauci, but Fauci has said that there's no evidence of that yet. And many other doctors uh, seem to concur with Fauci that, you know, you don't need a booster just yet. We need to see more evidence before we start telling people you got to get another shot. Right. Um, so we'll see. We'll see how that actually, you know, um, pans out. I think but they're scared of. I think they're scared of freaking people out, honestly. I think that's why oh. Fauci, the, C, the CDC and the FDA, they're like, look, we just need to, we want to get more people vaccinated first. So don't tell them a third shot is on the way. Don't <laughs> even begin to say that yet. Let's just get them, uh, no. you know, with one needle stuck in them. I think you're absolutely right. I don't want to get a third shot. Like, come on, damn, I just got one. I stood <laughs> in the line for like four hours, not four. It was like, you know, two hours in order to get that one. So, Did we talk boosters last week, you and I? I think we we touched on it. We touched. No, I just it. think it's just, of course, like Pfizer wants you to get a booster, like regardless of whether or not you need it. Like Pfizer needs it. Like Pfizer shareholders need you to get a booster shot. Like it, yeah. it makes Pfizer a lot of money if you start taking another. If the whole country yeah. gets a third round of shots, boy, that's good for Pfizer. No, man, I'm not doing it. Well, I won't say I won't do it, but, uh, you know, it, it'll be it'll be frustrating. I'll be like, uh like Conor McGregor screaming, medical stoppage. <laughs> you know, tell him medical stoppage. Stop all this freaking vaccinating. Um, you know, not overall. Of course, get a get a vaccine. Um, I, I'm pro-vaccine. I'm going to make that clear. Hate me if you want. You probably already do. 
if you're watching this on the Daily Caller. No, but, it's fine. Uh, it's fine to be pro. People should be pro vaccine. Vaccines are a, are a miracle of modern medicine. They've done great things. Yeah. I just think that like you're allowed to want information about it. You're allowed to assess the risks for yourself, you know, and and to make a decision. And my urging is like, if you're vulnerable, like get vaccinated, you know, if you haven't already had COVID, um, get vaccinated and that, that'll, that'll help protect you. But beyond that, like all this like pressure, I mean, think about like young people die at a higher rate to flu every year than they do to COVID just every year. We never have like aggressive, you need to get the flu vaccine. Like for, for young people, it's just, we've created this like disproportionate universe where like COVID is treated very differently than everything else. I well, remember, I know 600,000 people died in the United States. That's a huge number, but I'm, but that's why I'm saying protect those vulnerable people. That's where the, the fear, the fear again, you know, scientists are trying to look at worst case scenario and worst case scenario is that we get uh, a situation where you have um, a variant that is resistant to vaccines. We've seen all of these viruses mutate, of course, SARS, which, you know, COVID is in that family. Um, we've seen it certainly the flu vaccine, you know, the flu mutates every year. And right. now, you know, HIV mutated, there's an HIV two. Um, so there, there's all kinds of uh, viruses that mutate when they're not yeah. checked. Yeah. And so what we want to do with something that is um, as contagious as and as transmissible as COVID is keep it from mutating. And now, you know, people are talking about all these different variants that are developing. You know, they're trying to keep their eye on that lambda, uh, lambda variant that's developing. Of course, the Delta variant, which is more resistant to vaccines than alpha. We, you know, we have to be concerned about that. And the more unvaccinated people there are passing this virus around, right. um, the better chance, you know, viruses are, are really crafty. Like they're like a rat or like a mouse that just finds well, they a say, hole. They say that um, that the first iteration of the virus, like the, the mute, like one of the thoughts was um, that the deaths started actually tracking down, hospitalizations started tracking down last year before we had a vaccine. And yes, people got better at being treated in hospitals. And yes, the therapeutics were better a little bit. But like one of the beliefs was actually the virus started to become a little less deadly last year because viruses by their nature try not to kill off their host because they, they need to survive in order to be spread. So that one of the variations that occurs is like the deadlier the virus is, the more likely it is to actually die off. Um, and Anyway, I look. I, we're not going to defeat this thing, and like, we're not going to eradicate it. That's not going to happen. This thing's endemic, so it's going to keep cycling back. Um, I just think that you know, we shouldn't laugh off concerns about liberty. That's it. I, I just think you know, people are entitled yeah, no. to make decisions for themselves. I get the concerns, and um, you know, I, I definitely, again, do not believe the government should be going around. Uh, and direct, and no one's making this argument. Let me just say that. But you know, the government should not be going around putting needles in people's arms like um, right. compulsory. And no one, no one on any side of the aisle has ever made that argument. Right. Um, but the companies, but companies are really responsive to the CDC, though. So if the CDC says, yeah, you, you know, uh, companies should compel um, vaccines, then that's effectively a government mandate, and they'll do it. I mean, these these companies. 
will respond to what the CDC tells them that they should do. Yeah, I, I think private companies is different. You know what I mean? I, I, I do think that that's, that's a different situation. You know, um, we already talked about Trinity Healthcare. I believe they have every right and probably should tell their, their, uh, their workers to get vaccinated because you don't want this, you know, blowing up in hospitals and, and yeah. people not coming to work and all of that. I, I know we got to go. Uh, and we got to shut this down. But I do want to ask you, did you watch the fight this weekend? Did you read about the fight? I, I saw the uh, the video, the fight you're referring to. Is it Poirier McGregor? Yeah. Um, I, I saw the video of uh, McGregor going down. This is the first round, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the end, very end of the first round. Yeah. And, and can I just go on a really quick rant? I know you gotta, we got to shut it down. But no, really no, no. Go for rant. it. You, you've got time. Go ahead. You know what really, really grinds my gears? And it is when you have an American fighter fighting in America and they get booed. And a foreign fighter uh -huh. who fights in America gets cheered. Who's, like, by the way, who's a complete jackass, too? Like, just to yeah, be clear. Yeah, complete. You know, <laughs> and it's funny because that same crowd, when Trump came out, uh, there were lots of boos. Uh, but there were people who were screaming USA, USA. But it right. seemed ubiquitous that the crowd booed Justin Poirier, who does nothing but build houses in Uganda for poor people, take care of the medical bills of, of children with cancer. The guy is just a good human being. Shout out to Justin Poirier. I, I'm a fan of you, not only as a fighter, but as a man. I, I'm a fan of you. Um, but the crowd booed Justin Poirier and cheered Conor McGregor. You know what I mean? I have nothing. I like yeah. Conor McGregor as a fighter, even though he lost that fight legitimacy. He stepped legitimately. He stepped back. He broke his leg. Um, and if that were a street fight, you know, you step back, break your leg, and somebody pounds you into the ground and plays hopscotch on your brain, you lost the fight. Like, that's not like, oh, well, that's not legitimate because I broke my leg by mistake. Uh -huh. Like, no, that's just what it is. That's that's why the fight game is exciting. You can go, uh, you can, you know, dislocate your shoulder. You can yeah. hurt your knee. And it could be on the most benign kind of thing. I mean, so. And so it is what it is. You still lost the fight. The uh, the claim was, Poirier was claiming that the reason that that leg broke is because he blocked a kick, right, from Conor McGregor. And that that yeah. block uh, was enough force, like, between the, co the the combination of that kick and that block uh, must have put a chip in that leg, and that's what collapsed when uh, Conor McGregor took a hard step back away from that punch, right? Yeah, I didn't see that. I looked at the <laughs> – I looked at it again. I, I think Poirier may have been wrong about that. I, uh, McGregor did throw a kick. Yeah. Um, and, and, by the way, drink your milk or get your, you know – your lactate or whatever to get that calcium in. So those <laughs> bones stay strong. That's uh, crazy. I, I, this, a lot it always of freaks me MMA. out. It always yeah, freaks oh, me out man. when I see a guy's leg collapse. Who was that basketball player? It was like, I don't know, six or seven years ago. It was Kansas or Kentucky. It was in the, uh, it was, he was taking a shot, a jump shot from the three point line. Uh, and he came down on his leg and the leg just snapped in half. Do you remember this? There's an, oh, I don't remember that. Ooh, anyway, it was it was, it was it was it was it is bad though when you see that happen. Um, yeah. it's crazy. I do got to say, have you been to the UFC fight before? I have not. 
I have not. Only so I'm not. You're so, so you're way more into UFC than I am. So you should definitely be one of the guys who gets to go see one of these. But I, I did see uh, D, in DC where we're based um, in Washington, they had a fight. I want to see a year or two ago. They had a fight at the Capital One Arena. This is one of the rare DC bouts. They don't usually fight in DC. Yeah. And um, the title fight that night was Rosenstruck over Reem. Oh, okay. And, That's a good fight. I remember that fight. Yeah, and um, Alistair Overeem is the name of the dude. He's a monster, this guy. And he loses to Rosenstruck, but the way he lost is, I think it was the final round, Rosenstruck hit him so hard in the face <laughs> that his lip flapped open like a flag. Like, it just yeah. went that way. It went down. He had, like, a cleft palate from the punch. It just split all the way down and flapped open. It was one of the most gruesome things I've ever seen, and I saw it in person. I was like, freaking out at that fight and, i mean that is, and the is funny just thing, incredible the funny thing was rose um alistair overeem complained about the stoppage <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yes. he's like i was still up i was still able to fight it's like bro your amazing lip is like, half of your face is half. falling off right now uh, you should probably <laughs> stop right yeah i mean i i'm i'm a big fan um i'm a huge boxing fan and uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge uh, UFC or MMA fan as well. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think Conor McGregor uh, in that fight, it just frustrates me, number one. That was the big frustrating thing for me, to see American fans boo an American fighter, you know, <laughs> in America. Uh-huh. I guarantee you, and if we were to fight, if there was a fight in Ireland, there were a fight in Ireland. No one is getting applause over the Irish fighter. You know, some American fighter is not getting applause over, you know, an an Irish fighter. And then had the nerve to yell USA. You know what I mean? (laughs) Later, you know, at some point. It's like, that doesn't make sense. So if you're watching this- this, Was this the third fight with Poirier? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, this was the third fight. they're saying there's going to be another one. I don't understand how you go one and four in your last five fights and you're going to get, you know, an automatic, you know, another <laughs> fight. Yeah. Um, I think it's ridiculous. This is one of the things that I have big complaints I have for Dana White. Maybe we can bring Dana White on the show. And uh, yeah, I, I have cool. some real serious complaints about that. He's a big Trump supporter. That's right. We I, can get him in here and then we'll get those tickets and then you and I can go see a UFC match together. Love it. Love it. All right, guys. Thank you for tuning in um, to us. Uh, Hopefully we'll get the same amount of people as paid for a pay-per-view at UFC. It's not quite there yet. Big time. Except we're free. Thank you for, you know, I guess recommending us to your friends. I don't know. We're getting uh, more and more views. We really appreciate that, particularly on Facebook. But look at us on YouTube. Watch us on uh, anywhere where you can get a podcast. Like and subscribe. I'm Jason Nichols. That's Vince Colonnese. We are going to come and we are going to argue and also agree and slap high fives and we have great fashion. (laughs) Thank you so much for watching. Peace out.